everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I am speaking with Jason. You can find Jason on, Twi- um, on YouTube and at Twitter at Native Liberty. Um, he's doing a, he's doing a, I guess, I don't want to say a series maybe, but a bunch of videos about things like intersectionality and critical race theory and how it kind of pertains to Native Americans um, or like what we say up here in Canada, First Nations. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, so, it. Yeah. Um, I, so I, like I mentioned, I, I saw some of your videos. Well, I saw your interview with Benjamin Boyce mm-hmm. and then a lot of what you were saying about why you started doing this kind of stuff was very similar to my experience with it. Now, like I was exposed to some postmodernism and post-colonialism when I was in college and university. And that was like the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but intersectionality had just kind of come out a few years before, you know, before that. And um, same thing with critical race. So I didn't really have much experience with that, but it was when I, like the animal I was seeing in like around 2014 was, I mean, like it had echoes of it, but I'm like, that's not the same stuff as postmodernism. Mm-hmm. So um, if you want, I wouldn't mind talking about like how you started looking into this, like why you started making your videos and then go from there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for me, um, I might've mentioned this on another interview, but it started actually from uh, going to church, you know, and that mm-hmm. was the main thing um, as like an amateur Christian apologist, I guess you could say I, came across this in the uh in the church as a as a as a way to understand it because it was infiltrating the church at that time i think first and so i had i started reading uh basically the first like synopsis of what postmodernism is and uh deconstructionism and literary theory and you know then all the major players from uh going all the back to foucault and um derda and jameson leotard all the you know the, the big postmodern authors and then from there um I've, I've learned it all probably i would say like from the years um probably like from 1998 to about 2008 i studied it pretty heavily and then after that i kind of just i just chucked it because i figured it's it's a done deal it's not i never would have predicted how it would have trans you know morphed into this movement with intersectionality and standpoint epistemology lived experiences and all this i had critical race theory on top of it i never I never saw that coming. And so it's almost like I've had to, the hardest part for me is to go back and relearn what I had once learned really well. And to, you know, that's why it takes me a long time also to produce videos because I'm like, I want to make sure that what I'm producing is, is accurate and fair and balanced. But it's like, it's like trying to, what's that old saying? <laughs> like trying, to, trying to teach a dog, old, uh, trying to cheat, uh, what's that saying? Old dog new tricks. Yeah, yeah, old dog new tricks. It's like, I learned all this stuff, you know, 15 years ago. Now I have to relearn it again. I'm like, oh man, I know this stuff, but it's in the back of my head, but I just got to relearn it. So that's kind of how I came about um, uh, first coming into contact with postmodernism. And uh, I was familiar with someone with critical legal studies with with, uh, Derek Bell, uh, his theory of interest convergence and his, some of his books. And uh, I really didn't feel like I needed to get involved until like i think i said before like last year when he had the riots and i started because i really thought this was just an anomaly that this is like part of the radical left campuses like at berkeley or you know one-off here and there and i didn't realize how absolutely um broad this movement is and it's you know it's in every segment of our of our society and i started seeing it show up at work 
I've had friends who I've known for a long time now who came up to me and they're, you know, they've trusted my, my, you know, from my studies asking me what, what's going on. You know, I've got kids going off to college, coming back radicalized. And it's almost like they don't recognize them anymore. And you start seeing this and a lot of native youth end up um, buying into this movement without realizing what it is they're buying into. And I'm not, again, I've said this before, I'm not criticizing them or saying that they don't have, uh, you know, that they're unintelligent. It's just simply, I don't think they've seen the future consequences of what this movement entails. If that kind of make, if that yeah. answers your question. No, okay, like that's, again, that's kind of similar to where I was coming from on this. And it was, but in my case, it was, because I, I didn't go back and, you know, when I started reading this stuff again, I didn't go back and read postmodernism and all, because like I said, it, it, it had echoes of it, but it wasn't exactly quite there. Um, so I just went straight to, I started with some of the critical legal scholarship that I started reading critical race theory and intersectionality and just, okay, for, for my sake, it was again, uh, I would, you know, I came back from working in Afghanistan and, you know, I, I see the conversation on Islam had just gone so off the rails and I was like, okay, what's going on here? And then, you know, if I criticize it, I like, you know, for criticizing the hijab or saying that ISIS has something to do with Islam, like I got called a white supremacist. I'm like, wow, really? Yeah. I'm like, where's where that, that come from? <laughs> exactly. Like that's, that was my question. I'm like, huh? Like, I, you know, it's just, just a little too Brown for that. <laughs> but, and then, so I just started looking and I mean, you know, whatever, like that was in 2014 and then, you know, life happens, you're doing stuff. I ended up moving up to an Inuit community uh, at the end of 2014. So that made stuff a little bit harder because our internet sucked. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I, look, I was the one who managed the internet up there too. And it was just like, it was awful. It was just because I mean, so many problems. But yeah. So like, uh, and then again, after 2019, after George, or sorry, after last summer when, when George Floyd was killed, you know, friends my age, so I'm 51, would start saying stuff like, you know, talking about white privilege and talking about white fragility. And I'm just like, I know they didn't study it in school. Like, you know, these are some people I worked with overseas, like on military bases and stuff. I'm like, you guys, you know, you're an engineer. Like you didn't study yeah, you know, like exactly. intersectionality. Like you didn't study this stuff. Um, and so I just started speaking to them about it and it would just be like, like for some of them, I would just say, here, read this section. I would get, just get this section on in uh, white fragility, about white women's tears. I'm just, just read it. Like, this is where this stuff is coming from. And that's what you're, you're parroting right now. And then, and they got horrified and they, they stopped. So that's yeah. kind of, I, I came at it from the same thing. Cause I was seeing, uh, you know, I also got involved a bit in like, like I said, speaking against Islam. So there was like ex-Muslims and I would see it with the young ex-Muslims and it was, um, Okay, the Abrahamic faiths, you know, we take them to the extreme that they're misogynistic, they're homophobic, they're, you know, they're, there's, there's all kinds of bigotry and everything in them. Like, and so when you left that and you're started going to college and you start hearing about the stuff that's the antithesis of it, right? So mm -hmm. anti-racist, fighting misogyny, fighting transphobia, fighting, like, it's appealing. And so I was going at it from that end, but yeah, like I could see, you know, when you were saying like, your friends or your kids come home and they're spouting this stuff. It's like, okay. Yeah. I, like what I just spent, I mean, modest college, I guess maybe $10,000 a year <laughs> to turn my kids against me. Like, yeah. You know. Well, and it's like you said, they, it's almost this movement 
it preys upon, I think almost every revolutionary movement preys mm -hmm. upon the children of kids and the youth who don't have yeah. enough experience, enough, yeah. you know, background information to be able to refute an authority figure like a teacher or a professor. And you, you're talking about a hot button issue like race or something like that. And they're like, they're going to, you know, going to sit back and just not say anything. But I think this movement, it taps into that, you know, I guess, you, I don't want to say, I guess get a grudge that a lot of native have towards, you know, towards the federal government, towards, the, you know, the dominant society, the non-native society about all the broken treaties and the third world poverty that exists on, on reservations. So I, I understand it's, it's appeal and I, 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 I see, I'm seeing it now actually more and more where you see more native youth, especially uh, buy into this movement. And that's why I started, okay, I need to get involved. I need to actually get this stuff out there and, and criticize and show where this movement leads to because it's, it's not this panacea that's promising. And that, again, one of the things that I've studied throughout, you know, my little bit of study of history is that every time there's some sort of revolution, it's always failed. You know, uh, I would say the only revolution that succeeded was the American Revolution. And uh, there's actually a debate on whether people call that a revolution or rebellion. But, you know, there's throughout history, we go, going from the French Revolution up to eight, the revolutions in 1848 up to uh, Bolshevik Revolution, it, it's always the 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 poor the minorities that actually end up suffering in the long run and it's never changed i don't see anywhere in history that's actually been the opposite case and i was like you know everybody take a take a deep breath and pause for a second and let's think this through not let's just buy onto something because of emotion and that's where i feel like this movement has really focused itself upon like you said it's filtered through the throughout our society almost by osmosis and where i have people I work with a broad range of people, a really diverse environment. And you can see some of the people, like you said, who I've known for a while, and you can hear them using the language, the nomenclature of critical race theory without realizing they're using it. And it's like, oh, that's because of complicity in the system or that's systemic. And I'm like, where are you saying the word systemic? Where'd you learn that from? You know, a yeah. soundbite on CNN or something? Oh, so. yeah. Okay, that's one thing. Like, I've loved to read since I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. um, and... I'm thankful that I can also speak French because I grew up in Montreal. So, you know, I, I wish I could learn more languages just because I'd like to be able to read things in the original language. Yeah. But this stuff is starting to make me hate the language. Like it actually is oh. making, you know, like when I hear the word narrative now, like narrative <laughs> was a perfectly decent, useful word, <laughs> yes, you know, but now I cringe and it's like, Jesus Christ, like <laughs> these people make me hate the language. I think that's one of the things I, I despise the most about it. Uh, Okay, I want to ask you this something because, like, like I said, I worked in an Inuit community and I was up there for uh, a little over four years. Now, this was in 2014, so I just got back and I still wasn't, you know, I, I didn't really know what this stuff was. I just knew that, you know, I didn't like it. I didn't like, you know, quote unquote, secular blasphemy laws. I didn't like things like this. Like, what was going on? Now, I can list off the problems. Uh, that were up there, and I, you know, obviously, like outsider looking in, but still, it's there's there's a huge array of problems. But everyone who is going up there, either at the start of your career or the end of your career, there's not a lot of people mm. who go up mid career to stay there for a while. That's a good if, point. Actually, it's a really good point. Yeah. Oh, okay, look, I was living in a community of 2,500 people. The only way to get there was by plane. There are no roads. Mm -hmm. You know, not a lot of people want to go up there. My condo in Montreal had when I first got there. My condo in Montreal had half the bandwidth of the entire village like i mean you know like you were lucky if you got 1.5 megs 
Like, oh wow! Okay, like it like, so yeah, like it was isolated, isolated place, and I was a and that was the biggest community out of fourteen. That was twenty five hundred people, mm-hmm. so not a lot of people want to go up there. Not a lot of yeah. people want to stay there a long time. Um, and there's all, but every person I spoke with who was like working in social work or working with youth protection or working in healthcare, it was this attitude of these people are poor victims. And we have to show them how they've been victimized. And they would talk about helping, but everything I saw was how to how they have been like how the inner would have been victims. And I'm not saying like I'm not trying to make light of like we could talk about the forced migrations where people died of starvation because you moved them even you know a couple hundred miles north of where they were, and they're not used to that. Like take someone from right at the tree line, move them a couple hundred miles north, and yeah, it's not the same environment at all. You know, so like things like dog calls where, you know, one dog bit someone. So they went and killed every dog in the community. Wow. You know, like, 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 like these are, these are horrific things. Like we can yeah. talk about it, like, yeah. and let's talk about them. But yeah, you know, when there's other problems, it was, like I said, it was all about victimization. I don't know, like in your community, like I don't, I, I obviously you can't speak for everyone mm-hmm. or whatever, but like, like stuff where you see, like, do you see a lot of that? Cause in my mind, I was just like, there's got to be a better way than to continuously tell people they're victims. That's, you know, it's, it's a good question. Cause I, what I see more is I do see that it's almost like there's this victimhood paradigm that's being superimposed upon the indigenous people. But this is where I see this. I don't know if this adds to it or maybe makes it more confusing, but it's the, it's really is the youth that are the ones buying into this. The older natives that I know, um, I said this in another recent interview, but, most of the guys my age, I'm 47, most of the people my age and around my age, we all love the Washington Redskins. That was our team, you know, the NFL football team. And we wore the, you know, we wore jerseys, we wore the t-shirts, the hats, you know, the whole nine yards. And, you know, it was like our thing. And then all of a sudden, with I think the past what four or five years, it became an issue here in, in the States. And it was mainly the youth. It was the younger 20-year-old crowd and now we don't have it anymore. It's gone. It's just, it's just Washington football team. And so that seems to be like, a, I mean, that's just a small microcosm example, but it seems to be like the older natives um, that I know, and I can only speak for myself here on this, but they really take pride in not being a victim. Yeah, they've been through some horrible stuff. They've experienced horrible tragedy. There's issues with everything across the board from... Uh, healthcare to obesity to, to lack of medicine to lack of private property there's all these dysfunctions right but they they're resilient and they persevere and i've even known some native guys that would you know if you said that they're a victim they'd be willing to fight you throw down with you but the younger generation seems not to it's almost i don't know if, if, if and, I, and i put the blame on my generation but it's almost like we failed to replicate ourselves or our virtues within the younger generation and again i'm just speaking for my small circle of people that i know but I do see that, um, and also tying into your point earlier about uh, about the uh, reservation system. Um, are we have here? I live in Phoenix, and we have here what's called the Indian Hospital, and it's the same thing through IHS Indian Health Services. Most of the people that go there, that are the doctors and nurses, well, mainly the doctors, they're there at the beginning of their career or at the end of the career. They're there if they're at the beginning, they're punching their ticket, working for the government to get that um, experience. And as soon as they get that, they meet their hours, then they're gone to some, you know, high profile career, which I'm not knocking that. I get that, but it, we don't get usually the best care and because you know, they're not looking at it as 
I'm not trying to besmirch every single person that works there, but uh, there's been some horrible stories and we, my own family, we've experienced stuff, the same thing, same kind of thing. But again, like back to your point, I see it mainly within the youth. I don't, there are, there has been, there is of course radical elements within native culture. There was the whole A movement, the American Indian movement, um, which I'm not really too much, too big on, on the militant side of it. I get it and I understand it. I know the birth of it, the genesis of it. I understand what they're trying to do and the whole occupying of Alcatraz. And I, and I, and I actually appreciate it, but I don't, that's not my position, but this is something completely different than the A movement, the radical A movement, the militant movement. This is, to me, this is not just trying to ask for rights for natives. This is actually trying to tear the entire system to the ground and it's capitalizing or it's exploiting that feeling of envy and resentment against the system and i I, and i see that it's just uh, it's it's not good for society it's not good for civilization this is what i really look at i was was talking to benjamin voice i said i really feel like we're at a precipice here and if we don't turn back from it it's it's gonna it's getting bad so like some of this stuff like i look at it because i mean i've also um you know i have family in india i go back there and i hear some of the things there uh and then I saw an interview with this woman from India talking about like transgenderism and how that's affecting women's rights and stuff. And it's, and then even up North now, okay, so in Canada, there's uh, the Inuit don't live on reservations. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's a distinction between first nations, Inuit and the Métis, which are like French Indian. Um, I don't know, like mixed. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know what the, the correct word is these days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's like a landmine. Yeah. yeah. No, but like exactly. I said, that, so the, so the Métis were that, and it's so they each had their own, and each you know each nation would have a treaty with the government, yep, federal or provincial, and then like all the First Nations have one treaty. Like so, it's I'm you know I'm sure it's quite. A, so, but the Inuit were different. Where I was living, it was under it was called the James Bay Agreement. It was Northern Quebec, and even out of the 14 communities up there, one of them decided, no, we're on our own. We're not part of that agreement. So it's it's weird. Oh. <laughs> But you, you have like, you know, every community has a land holding. No one's allowed to own property. Yeah. Um, so housing is an issue up there because if you can't own property, you can't get a mortgage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it's all communal housing. So, uh, you know, they'll complain about things like that. But at the same time, you know, we had our prime minister a couple of years ago said he had to worry about sending uh, construction crews into remote areas in the summer because of, you know, uh, women's rights and stuff. And I'm like, you know, man, like they need houses up here. You've yeah, got a yeah. family of six and a two bedroom house. Yeah. Like, you know, and they, you know, when the construction te- teams came up in the summer, because, you know, that's the only time you can work up there. It's the only time the boats can get up with the, with the supplies. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. So, so you're, you're pretty isolated up there then. Oh, yeah, I was, not, oh, wow. I was closer to the Arctic circle than I was to Montreal. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, like, I mean, like when I see these policies coming in and I see them, I'm like, you're not fixing anything. You're not, you're, you're actually hurting these people, Mm -hmm. like you said, but there was a point. And again, speaking to people who are around my age, who are into it, um, you know, or people who'd lived up there because there were people who went up and lived up there 20, 30 years. They got married. They had kids, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and with the older generation. So let's say the people who were you know, like my mom's age, like mid seventies type of thing. Right. So there was kind of a thing with the Gen Xers where 
study and educate, go educate yourself and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, those who did go off to college and those who did leave and go to university, when they came back, they were like, oh, you think you're better than us now? Oh, yeah. And so there was that. But now, like, there's not so much of a problem with get yourself educated and stuff. And there's still huge issues with the school, but it's, they're, they're okay with taking on the new, um, especially like I said, the younger, the youth, they're okay with taking on like the new thinking because the new thinking is for them. That's okay. We're fighting the colonial system Still, that the white yeah. man would put on. But in my mind, I'm like, this is another colonial system. Like mm -hmm. you're, you know, Joy Behar lecturing Tim Scott about what systemic racism. I'm like, sorry, like, you know, I, I, that's so condescending. And it I, is. And, and like, or people try to tell me that something's racist. I'm like, or cultural appropriation, but I'm like, no, it's not. It's, it's fine. You know, like, so that like I, the, like I see this weird thing in there where they're like, okay, we're gonna fight the colonial powers, which are like again, like we could talk about, and let there there are some serious things that need to be talked about, and it needs and like that. My problem with this stuff, like what we were saying, like yes, I think it's a direct attack on civilization and the Enlightenment and all that, but it's bigger. My bigger issue with it is all these important talks, like all these things that we have to fix. Mm -hmm. It's like throwing a wrench, you know, a monkey wrench into the work, right? It's, it's, it's going to spoil everything. And that, yeah. that it's, you can't talk about the problem with alcoholism up there. If you blame it all on missionaries in the 1800s that brought yeah, booze up absolutely. to the mm -hmm. Inuit communities. Yeah. That was shitty. And you know, whatever we can talk until we're blue in the face about how bad that was, but it's not going to help the people who are alcoholic right now. Like, like I had an employee who, I mean, it took him, it took me a few months of him calling me. Like sometimes he'd call me at two in the morning saying, I'm too drunk. I'm not showing up tomorrow. Oh, wow. And yeah. it took a few months before I was even allowed to give him like a verbal reprimand because, oh, well, cultural, culturally sensitive, this and that. I'm like, okay, you know, it, it shouldn't matter. Like if, it, you know, like if the guy's white, I can say it. If he's into it, I can't like, I mean. Yeah. There, no, I've experienced the same thing. It's almost like there's this coddling which I was, which is my family, um, especially my native side of the family. We we were raised to be very, you know, I guess you could say Western. You know, today on time, merit your 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 pay, be responsible for your actions, and we take accountability very seriously. But there is that, there is some cultures. I wouldn't. I don't know if it's say cultures, but there is that. And again, this is what I'm saying. Like, like wait, to your point that. They, this movement is superimposing and when it superimposes this to me very reductive ideology you it, it it cheapens the real issues that are out there like obesity healthcare lack of healthcare lack of access to it um housing and then alcoholism and all these other dysfunctions and of course there's like the big one where there's a lot of native women that are raped and murdered and their cases go unsolved like it's not because of colonial powers at one point in time let's deal with the real issue and not try to gloss it over but i this is something in my studies throughout the years i've seen and i've said this before and i'll qualify it again but i don't so i'll just say it this seems to be a common phenomenon on the radical left and scholarship especially in academia where they find some theory some pet theory and they ruthlessly apply it uh to indigenous people or non-native people i'm sorry to native people minorities in general and they they 
And, in, and instead of allowing the actual people, the minorities, the indigenous people to speak for themselves, they speak for them. Like you see this in, I think, 1928, Coming of Age in Samoa with, Mar with Margaret Mead's famous book, and where she argues that the Samoan culture doesn't have the hangups of the West and they don't care about virginity and uh, there's no such rules about uh, adultery. And it wasn't until 1983, 60 something years later, that a book was published by Derek Freeman and he refuted everything. And he actually interviewed the, the young teenagers that she interviewed. And they basically said, no, she came out here looking for this panacea of non-Western. And if anything, Samoan culture is extremely, it's actually more stricter than Western culture. You know, there are the rules of um, virginity, there are rules on uh, monogamy. And so, you, but then you see this again in 1992 with Ira Rigoberta Menchu, another famous example. And then it's just always this, and there's that whole linguistic relativity that John McWhorter was talking about years ago. And you see this constantly. And the, to me, this is just another, um, another example of the radical left. I don't even know if that's a good term. Maybe it's social justice scholarship, but it's just another yeah. example of this, again, super picking out something uh, or, or people and applying this, this hegemonic concept to, to them. And again, you're not allowing them to speak. And there's a great diversity of opinion. Like, like me and you, we're very, there's diversity of opinion right here. And yet you don't get that if you listen to what these professors are saying. I, was gonna, I wanted to ask you about this because um, so with the gender stuff now, Okay, so you hear about, and you started hearing it more and more in the last few years. Oh, the the hijras in the in India. I see before colonialism, they had a third gender, and I'm like, no, that's not quite what the hijras were. Okay, I my family left India when I was six, but you know, I keep going back, and my parents, did. and it was, they were looked down upon, like they were not, mm -hmm. you know, glorified Celebrated, or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. but they would have friends who worked in the hospitals and whenever someone was born, they would, you know, they would tip them off. So they'd go to that person's house and start playing music and really loud, awful music. And until you gave them a little bunny, a little bit of money and they went away. Oh. Now, now, now there was also worse parts of this stuff too. Like there were, when families had too many kids, especially too many sons, mm -hmm. you could castrate or basically, I mean, you could completely like take everything off, like the balls and the dick and then leave, oh, them, wow. at a temp leave them at a temple. Yeah. Wow. And then that's an offering. And then they, they, you know, some of it was like sexual favors. Like I, 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 you know, I don't know all of it enough about it, but so that's where these hijras came from. And it's not necessarily a third gender or, you know, it's like, um, it's not necessarily like transgenderism or anything like that. It was just, you know, it was a weird situation and it's, they're there, they're, but they're an underclass. Like, so when I hear stuff like two spirit, now I've, again, I've read, different things on this i've read people say like no 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 that that it's it's again gender ideology taking this and using it like one thing said that the term actually means like the actual translation of the term is kept boy like now i i know like there's a lot of different you know like like in canada we say nations i don't know if it's u.s it's tribes or whatever like but there's a lot of different you know like what's going on with like algonquin up in new york state is not the same it's what's going on with like yeah. you know like the dakotas and stuff right so but like terms like go to spirit and things like that like like do you see like a glomming on of that or do you see like other things being you know 
I mean, I'll give you another stupid example. Like, okay, don't do yoga because it's cultural appropriation. And then the other day it was like, oh, no white yoga person is complaining about what's going on in India with COVID. It's like, like, come on. You know, like, you know, like, okay, like that's, but like, do you see weird stuff like that? Like, I mean, like, I don't know if you can speak about the two spirit thing. Uh, but no, I'm familiar with it. And there, um, th- th- it's a concept that I don't know. I can't say if it, I haven't studied this. So I don't know if this is something that my tribe has ever endorsed. I, I know the concepts out there. And I've heard that I heard it probably 15, uh, probably when 20 something years ago is when I first heard the term two spirits. I mean, it's, it's always been around, but it wasn't as centralized and focused of an issue as it is today, of course. Um, but it was always, there's, it's always been around and I've, you know, known tons of different native guys and ladies from different, you know, reservations and tribes. And so it's always been something that's out there, but it, I really am not sure if I can speak to it because I don't know the history of it as far as my tribe's stance on it. Um, but it, it, it definitely is out there. And, uh, you know, you, of course, I've known people, uh, you know, we call it, they call it two spirits. But it seems to be like, again, and like we were saying earlier, and like you said, Gen Xer, I don't know if it was just my generation, but it was, it was accepted. It, it, it may have been somewhat looked down upon, marginalized, I guess you could say, but they were still part of society. It wasn't like they were non-native or ostracized or anything, anything extreme like that. But today it's the opposite where it's the, it almost seems to be the focus of everything. And that's something that's completely new within native culture. And I, when I watch, you know, I'll just go on YouTube and watch videos of, of young native people who are like probably anywhere from like 17 up to 25. And they're very adamant, very uh, dogmatic about their position. And that's a new, that is new to me. And I think, again, that's more from not so much their own free thinking, thinking through it. I think, again, that's them being regurgitating as a parrot what their professors have taught them, told them. And that's now in, and there's something that I, there's a unique phenomenon. Maybe you can speak to this um, also, but there's an author named Vine Deloria and he, he's a Native American scholar. For, and years ago, he wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins. And he's got a chapter in there, chapter four. Uh, it's called Anthropos and the Indian. I think that's the title. And he's arguing that, and it's, it's a good point, because anthropolog- anthropologists just were everywhere on reservations, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And what you end up getting was the anthropological Indian or the, the workshop Indian. Because these ideas about what counts as being an, an authentic Indian was that every tribe was a warrior tribe. Every tribe lived in teepees. Every tribe had buckskin. And if there was alcoholism or if there was a dysfunction, it was because you needed to figure out some way to be a farmer, figure out some way to resurrect the warrior spirit or the culture. Uh, it was always, it was just, and, it, and it, what I'm saying is it ended up. Uh, that these ideas from the anthropological studies ended up infiltrating and it actually ended up defining Native Americans and spreading amongst Native culture of this is what a real Indian is. You, you, you see, yeah. see what I mean? It's it's a same, okay, like, now when I was up north, okay, I was there, like I said, four and a half years or so, like, so I mean, I don't want to say, like, you know, and I was there to work, so I was like, not like I did a study or anything, but, you know, just even speaking to people, I mean, speaking to people you know around my age who were and they would just see that they would be like they're trying to force us to be something that we're not like and I, okay i'd see with muslims um or someone you know 
if you have it on the news, you have the guy with the long beard or the woman with the hijab talking about Islam. And, you know, it, you very rarely got, um, you know, a reform Muslim or a moderate Muslim or like mm-hmm. an ex-Muslim or something like that on, you know, you would get Ayan Hirsi Ali on Fox now and then Bill Maher had a few people on, but I mean, like in mainstream news, you would, I think CNN might've had Ayan Hirsi Ali on a couple of times, but you would never get any kind of other view. It was, this is what a Muslim is. This is, it was very essentializing. I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ, like look at our, our prime minister when he did a trip to India, I mean, the, the clothes he was wearing, like, I mean, he went to a business meeting, okay. Business uh-huh. meetings in India, people wear suits. Now, some people might wear what's called, um, what the hell is it called? Uh, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's, it's just like a long, it, it, if you look back at like the 1800s, like the Brits, they would wear those long cloaks, like they're yeah, like three quarter length. Okay. So it was that kind of thing. It was um, Sherevani. That's what it's called. Okay. But it's, oh, okay. but now you have those for business, but you also, those are now mainly just for weddings. And this guy was going to business meetings, wearing what you would wear to a wedding. And it's like, you know, <laughs> you don't go to a business meeting in a wedding suit. Yeah. You know, it's like, unless you just happen to be leaving a wedding or something, right? Like, it's, yeah. so it, it, it was that kind of socializing. This is what it is to, you know, be a Muslim. Like that Olympic uh, fencer, I think she won silver in fencing or she won bronze. I can't remember, but there were other Muslim athletes at those Olympics who did better in their sports than she did in hers. Mm-hmm. But she was the one that the fuss was made about because she had a hijab. She's what's truly Muslim. Oh, yeah. And, okay. I, and I see and I see that on both sides. I like um I the focus too for a while was on the extreme of like Wahhabianism yeah. and the Muslim Brotherhood. It's like, well, there's this whole thing called Sufism and there's this whole other branch within Islam. It's like, why are we focusing? It's it's always like I was telling Benjamin Boyce, like we always seem to go from one extreme to the other. Uh, okay, but like, okay, I mean, I, I'll give Islam, we can get, get into that, but the extreme to the extreme, that's, it's, I mean, I've said the same thing. I said, <clears throat> you know, the pendulum is just going from one overcorrection to another. And, yeah. you know, it's it, it needs to slow down in the middle for a little bit longer so we can just avoid the crazy for a little bit. Yeah. But like with the Islam thing, I think there's a, first of all, you got to look at it in, <clears throat> like, don't bring up Sufism. It's Sufism right now, it's, it's like the Kabbalah and Judaism. It's it's a little oh, mystic. Really? It's it's it, it's not it's not it, it's mysticism and stuff. Yeah, it's not got a lot of hold, and <clears throat> not a lot of people give it. Even moderate Muslims don't really give it a lot of. Oh, credence. okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but like, okay, there's there's things called madhab. So there's four in in Sunni Islam. There's so there's Hanafi, Shafi, Salafi, and um, uh, and Maliki. I think okay, like so there's these four schools of thought, and some are more extreme than others. So Salafi and Wahhabism are the same thing, but Islam, like these days, you got to look at it in, in a couple of different places. So there's one, what's going on in the middle East and North Africa, one, what's going on in South Asia. Then there's like the Asia, Asia Pacific. Then there's what's going on in places like the UK, Canada, because it's, it's different levels from 1979 till, I mean, con- continuing Saudi mm-hmm. has been pumping up madrasas and money into mm-hmm. Wahhabi and Salafi mosques. Until Iran got started getting sanctions on them in the in the mid eighties, I guess they they were pumping out money as well. So there's a lot of hardcore Shiism spreading out there. Yeah, like I said, I, I think I mentioned I grew up in Iran for a little bit uh, yeah. be- before Khomeini took over. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, 
I mean, there was a huge difference. I'm not saying that, you know, the Shaw was a great guy or anything like that, but oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but like, the, so you got that Salafi Islam going everywhere, except for the Middle East, the Middle East, you had those different schools of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's going on with Islam right now around the world, except for, like I said, where you are having some debate and where you are seeing some, I, I'm more optimistic about the Middle East than I am about a place like Pakistan. Oh, wow. Really? Oh, okay. The Middle East, the revolutions that are happening, like what's happening in Iran with students, what happened, what's happening in Iraq with students, what's happening, um, you know, in all these countries, like everything, they were just sick and tired of the government Yeah, and everything was always wrapped up with religion. So they're just sick and tired of it. Whereas you take a place like Pakistan. So a couple of years ago, they took out a line from the oath of office that said Muhammad was the last prophet. Now, the reason they had that in there was because, well, A, that's what they believe, obviously, but there's a sect of Islam that's predominant in, in, in Pakistan, the Ahmadis, mm-hmm. who say, consider them like Mormons of Islam. So they have another prophet that came out in the 1800s. He said, I'm not, Muhammad was the last prophet to bring the law. I'm a new prophet to interpret it. So oh, he wow. wasn't, so he was just interpreting how it was done. So because of that, they're not really considered uh, Muslims. If they pray, they can't call their, you know, their, their temple, they can't call it a mosque. Um, all kinds of weird things. About 200,000 people protested mm-hmm. this. And they, it was a clerical error, apparently. So 200,000 people freaked out because the government made a mistake and it looked like they were relaxing. Like very, very minor rule. It looked like they were relaxing. Yeah. Whereas, so when the people saw from the top down or relaxing, they freaked out. Whereas in the Middle East, it's from the bottom up saying, relax yeah. this shit. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm more optimistic about those places. Like, so... I mean, like the, the whole thing around Islam, it's, it's there, there's, cause yes, the tenets are all the same. Like, you know, a Catholic in the Philippines and a Catholic in New York city are going to believe the same basic tenets, but mm-hmm. an Irish Catholic in New York city is a lot different than a Catholic yeah. in the Philippines, right? Like, it's, yeah. mm-hmm. so yes, Muslims around the world believe the same tenets, but you know, a Muslim in Pakistan has a different understanding than a Muslim in uh, Yemen or yeah. Saudi Arabia. And also there's a language barrier. Only about 80% of Muslims around the world speak Arabic. And, you know, you, most people learn the religion in Arabic. And it's like, I learned how to read the Quran. I, can, mm-hmm. I can't do it anymore because it's been too long, but I learned how to read Arabic and I could pronounce the words. Oh, I wow. Just didn't, I just didn't know what they meant. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, like, the, the, that's how, the, that's what, like, the, the, the Islam thing, like, it's, you know, they, they always put the one person on, but, like, I know what you're talking about. There's, there's so many different aspects to it, but, we're confronted like when we're out here we're confronted by isis and you know that's what's in the news that's what's out there uh so if a terrorist attack happens this and that um so that's the legitimate threat you got to look at it um but you also got to look at it like and and this is i'll I'll bring it back to this woke stuff um like like i don't know if you saw the sam harris on bill maher with uh uh with ben affleck yeah yeah i did okay (laughs) yeah so so what sam was talking about there with those concentric circles Mm-hmm. So yeah, like right at the very center, you have ISIS and Al Qaeda. You have someone who's willing to go cl- blow themselves up to kill the infidel, right? That's yeah. a small, small group. Outside of that, you have people who are who will believe that it's right, who will you know support them, give them money, hide them, but they won't go do it. Then it, it you know it grows, you know it, it grows out like from the circles, like this woke stuff. It's you know. It, 
A, I say they're turning the, the schools into woke madrasas. So you have these kids starting it from kindergarten now. Yeah, it's insane. And, um, but you have a, like a very, very hardcore center that will, you know, attack a federal building or blow up uh, Starbucks or take over a state legislature. And I mean, like, you know, we can talk about January 6th. Like, I'm not trying to downplay that. Like, but, you know, like that's a different beast altogether. But like yeah. these people, there's, there is that hardcore center that will do that, that will murder someone in Chaz or that, yeah. you know, like, you know, like they have that hardcore belief. Then you have the ones who will go, you know, carry their umbrellas. So no, the, the press can't see you, you mm -hmm. know, stage this, the thing. So it's the same kind of thing with this. It's like, I, yeah. I think I see with this. So sorry, I, I ramble a lot. So no, it's good. No, it's like you said, like we, they have their almost their own shock troops. Oh no. So they have their own shock troops and they have, I mean, it's not as if it's a coordinated effort, but academia is, is like the, it really, it's funny, but we use the people, they use the term hegemonic power as being part of the system of, you know, of white supremacy. And it's like, no, the university is taken over a long time ago by it's, if anything, it's monolithically, monolithically to the left and pretty much woke has been, it's taken over, you know? And it's like, so that to me is like, that's where we, all these ideas are getting from influence from. And then it's in the culture now. And there's always, I studied a book years ago, I forget the name of it, somewhere bookshelf somewhere, but that there's a, there's about a 10 to 15 year, maybe a generational gap between what is taught in academia before it hits society. It usually hits academia first. Mm-hmm. Maybe it comes over from Britain to England, it's academia, and then it hits the arts. Usually the first place is the arts. They soak it up, the humanities, literary studies, and then it gets infiltrated through the cultures, through Hollywood, the movies, books, and then it's just everywhere. And then people pick up on it. But usually it's, there's like a, a, a delay. And that's what you're seeing now to me is like, and I was really of the belief that I didn't take it seriously because I really thought this is like separate cases here and there. And I didn't realize how much of a paradigm shift we've had in our culture see i don't like i said i don't know if i was i keep saying this i mean i was just the frog throwing the boiling water yeah because like, <laughs> exactly okay, yeah no, i mean i left in 2002 i came back in february uh, the end of february of 2014 uh -huh. so social media wasn't really a thing and like in the middle of a war zone you're not really allowed on facebook mm -hmm. i mean you know you have it in your quarters but like you're very limited and bandwidth sucked i mean so I didn't know what was going on. And so when I came back, like, and then again, I, I moved up North when it's minus 50 outside and, you know, it's freezing cold. There's not a lot to do. So you sit in your, sit in your apartment and like, I read and I watched stuff and I'm like, you know, just little things. Like I, I look back and I'm just like, okay, there's a study by this guy, Zach Goldberg. I don't know if you read it. It's part of his PhD dissertation. And it was, he looked at media uh, starting about, 2000 i think or maybe in the 90s mm -hmm. and the use of the terms race racism white supremacy that kind of stuff i think i've seen that chart yeah yeah and then you just start seeing it in obama's first term it starts going mm -hmm. up and up and up and up and up and by 2016 it's gone like crazy um so it's like you can see when this stuff came in yeah you can see like the slow spread so it took like my Again, this was my tinfoil hat theory, but I've heard John McWhorter say something similar, so I feel a little bit vindicated on this. But um, I said, you know, like if you look at intersectionality and all that stuff, the first people getting the PhDs with that intersectional framework framework were probably coming out in the mid to late nineties, mm -hmm. and that's when those people went in. And I mean, you know, you want to 
uh, you're in the Bush government. You've launched, uh, you know, Desert Storm. You want to make it look like you're doing something against racism. You go out here, a PhD in sociology, you know, focused on African-American studies, basically yeah. critical race theory, right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that guy forms your racism policy. Or so you can see how this stuff built up. And then in 2014, it was breaking out everywhere. You had the, I mean, the one like, like this sticks out in my head, like, because people are still like, oh my God, the media has gone so bad. I'm like, no, the media has been bad for a while. Like you had that journalism professor at University of Missouri calling for muscle on a journalism student covering oh, a wow. protest at the school. Okay. She got fired, which good, fine. Because I mean, but the university at that point should have said, what the hell's going on in exactly. our journalism department? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because if you got that, like she was teaching journalism and she's calling for muscle on a reporter. Like, I'm like, okay, something's not right here. Yeah. Well, it's, I think that's the biggest disconnect is I think, I think for most like normal people, this stuff is so like it it's it's like from another planet uh, like like if the fact that it's even allowed to be an issue uh, and then these deans of these schools are just tolerating it's like do you guys not have any backbone do you not have any principles do you not stand up on ethics what is are you so beholden to your the money that you're making from your job or the prestige that you get from it or the your friends your circle of friends that you hang with it's like to me having a sense of honor and believing in right and wrong and holding to the truth and speaking out against it is far more important as a human being than it is any kind of expedient. Um, I, I just, I, I don't get it. And I think that's where my generation, the older natives that I know, and they're, they're really they look upon this with bewilderment. They're, they're, they're like dumbfounded. They don't. And then, so that's kind of why um, I started this channel was like I had mentioned before was really my channel was started just for my friends the people that I know that my cl- my small circle of friends and, you know, and my family, extended family, but it was to, it was to give them like a mental peg for them to hang their hat on so they can then go out and research on their own, but at least it could give them something to help bring order to the chaos. And I could say, okay, this is, this is this influence of Gramsci here. This is the influence of Foucault. And this is the influence of uh, Derek Bell and uh, Patricia, Patricia Hill Collins. This is, intersectionality from uh, Crenshaw and once I was able to do that and again that was me having to go back through it and read it all again but and of course James Lindsay's that cynical theories is a phenomenal that was a huge help but it's it's and I was going to say this earlier but it's almost like w- when I see all this stuff in the culture I was under the belief that it was going to go away that it would just wash itself out eventually and I was really uh, still am of the belief that that saying go woke go broke but I didn't realize that they're trying to change. The, 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 they're actually in society, they're in society now. And instead of going broke, they've infiltrated corporate, corporate America and through the okay. HR departments, you know, and they're actually trying to change it. It's like, oh, wow, this is, I didn't see that coming again. It's like another blind spot on my, my analytical thinking. Okay. I want to ask you about, because I touched on this a couple of times, but Okay everything like when i was up north and again like stupid little examples so i worked uh, so i was working for the government up there um so there was one government that looked after the 14 communities and it was kind of like a municipal government but we also had some federal and provincial um jurisdictions so one of the things that was there was we ran an internet service provider so when we were switching everything over like it wasn't fiber coming up from the south going up there it was just fiber within the community but when we were switching over to that the modems were a lot more expensive 
like the old modems we had, they were like 50 bucks. So if someone ruined it, whatever, you know, you're going to lose your $50 deposit. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. These things were like 600 bucks. Now I was being forced to put them in a mechanical room where the person has no access to it. So like, if you needed to restart your modem, you couldn't because it was locked because oh, all wow. it was all social housing. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of like fourplexes, and you had one mechanical room. So there was like, so you'd have like a four houses. And in the center, there was like a, a mechanical room that, with that data, data, houses, board, right? data board yeah, and everything. Yeah. And like, yo, know, four hot water tanks for what, like yeah. it was, everything was in there. And it was, so when, because it was all social housing. So when the government maintenance crews came by, they only had to go to one place right? yeah. instead of going to each house. So, mm-hmm. but they got us to put the modems and all that in there. And I'm like, this is going to be more expensive. So, cause you know, there's 14 communities. So if something goes wrong in one community, I have to fly a technician up there mm. because the person, you know, just to go restart a modem. I'm like, but their answer was, well, we can't expect people to take care of their equipment. I'm oh, like, wow. yeah. Okay. I just I mean, I looked at my boss. I'm like, that's infantilizing. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and another thing that was like, you know, these are on a small scale. There, there was much larger, like you can scale this up to larger problems. But another thing was when people went and took their prescriptions. Now, like if I go get my prescriptions, I get a bottle. It's like take two pills, you know, three times a day, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying this is all Inuit that had this, but a large chunk of the Inuit community would get like a, a sheet. So it had seven days on it. And then the day was broken up. So if you had to take a pill twice a day or three times a day, each day was broken up into like, you know, sections. Yeah. And they would put out each serving of all their medications in this sheet and seal it up and give it to them and say, okay, so, you know, in the morning you take this in the afternoon, you take this one. And so like, it was just, just make sure it was just peel and pop the pills. Like there was no thinking involved. There was no, like everything was done. And, and, Mm -hmm. And so again, I'm like, you know, Okay, first of all, living up in Arctic Canada, like like I said, like at night it gets, you know, from January from okay, let's say from about Christmas to the end of February, you're looking at you know, average of about between minus twenty five and minus thirty Celsius every day. Oh wow. Yeah. And okay, obviously some day, but then there's but then there are days when it go up to minus fifty, minus sixty, then you add the wind chill. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can't live up there if you're not resilient, especially yeah, like yeah. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they didn't have houses until their fifties. Yeah. You know, like you know, yeah. these are not weak people. So, like that kind of stuff. Do you see, like 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 treating people like complete children? Like you know, like you know, I saw some of this in the late eighties with the political correctness, and I was just like, you know, the bigotry of low expectations, whatever. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'd rather you call me a packy than treat me like that. Yeah, like, you know, like that—that's yeah. just me, obviously. But like, what? Like, do you see that kind of stuff? Like, oh, definitely. Like, like, okay. I, I just—I'm gonna take off a little bit of what you're saying before. Can you take, you know, when you speak to your, you know, like people your generation and you know maybe like some of the elders or whatever, can you go to like the Department of Native Affairs or things like that and say, you know what? We as a community don't want these kind of policies, or are you stuck with what the government gives you? you're kind of stuck with it and that's this i was actually talking about a good friend the other day actually it's a couple of friends of mine that i'm I'm gonna i'm not trying to b- b- tie into my channel but mm-hmm. i am i have i've written something a while ago it's based upon a libertarian author named hearns haman hoppe and it's about the role of the natural elite and that natives have lost that role of the natural we live in such a 
egalitarian society that anytime you mention that there's a hierarchy of elitism, people recoil in horror. Like what you mean? There's innate differences between people. Yeah. There's some people that have, you know, they're maybe have a better mental, mental fortitude. Maybe they have more empathy. Uh, they display wisdom or they exhibit certain traits within the tribe, which make them the natural chosen leaders. And that's, they became chiefs. Right. Mm. And this is like, this is just a spontaneous, natural organic development within tribes throughout all most of native america um but with the birth of democracy and i shouldn't say that with the enforcement of democracy in the 1930s 40s and 50s the bia the bureau of indian affairs in america forced um most native tribes to adopt this top-down vertical model of governments governance Whereas most native cultures had a very horizontal base, they shared power amongst families, or they picked someone to be the natural leader or the judge because they exhibited wisdom and fairness, right? And so I see what's happening now is that, is that you have this system in place, which is foreign to the traditional way of, of governing a people. And so what you get now is you have elections on tribal councils throughout, throughout tribal America, Indian country, where it's who has it's a popularity contest it's like no different than high school it's just how many people can this guy's family come out that for that one day and vote for him so you have elections where out of a tribe of 10,000 people 400 people vote and 200 vote for this guy and 50 people vote for this guy and 50, so the guy with 200 votes wins or the other other woman and so you end up getting stuck with not the best candidate because they exhibit these virtues you get the best candidate who can promise you all these handouts and that seems to be a crime. And again, I can't speak for all the tribes, but from what I've read and studied, and I've, I, I mean, I'm, my, my thing was to be an economist, but from what I've read and studied, it seems to be that seems to affect most native communities is that once you get that kind of mindset in play, you, it just builds itself on more and more handouts, um, wanting more government grants, more money. And you get this, like, I agree. I, I really believe there's a, there's a, uh, direct relationship uh between the more handouts you get the more you're robbed of your independence and and anytime you get money from the federal government it comes with all these strings attached there's all these tentacles that come with it and you lose your you lose some of your your sense of self-autonomy and sovereignty and i see that more and more now within native culture where there is the benefit of course of reliving what's called a self-determination era since the 70s however that comes still with this and some of it, and this is like, again, this is whole maze work, tangle work of federal and state regulations and laws and legislation that just, are just a, it's just in like a schizophrenic system. So I see at the same time, there's, um, there's a lot of effort to be independent as a community, but also there's also this effort to get as much as you can from the federal government. And I, I like to, this is what I do. Also, I go, I go I take these long roundabout ways of answering a question. But uh, back to your point, I, I do see a, a, lo a lot more of that, but I almost see that as, especially in the States, I, I see that through FDR's um, second Bill of Rights speech and then really picked up steam under Lyndon B. Johnson, the Great Society Experiment, where you had this entire government apparatus dedicated to helping people. And I, and I, and I really believe they, they believe this. It was a noble effort on their part, but I think they... You know, it's like the best laid plans of mice and men or it's, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And this great society experiment actually created inter intergenerational dependency upon the federal government and where it made 
especially the black family, the black father, made him obsolete. You know, and and this is what this is what birth of the whole welfare state. And now what I see today before us is basically you have the crony capitalism or corporate welfare, the same thing. So again, this I'm I'm going off on a tangent here, but yeah, I, I do see it. Yeah. We were going towards a way where we could find a good balance of trying to figure this out. And I think like again around the late nineties it shifted. It went from the idea of Martin Luther King to mm-hmm. you know, the content of the character, then it went to identity politics. But when I see it like, like you'd mentioned, like, you know, uh, Native women being raped. Now, there was, like, because I see it in things like that. that, that there's a, a problem, like, you know, there's a huge problem in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. But when the study came out a couple years ago, at first they were playing it down because it was, I think, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it was over 90%, like maybe 95%. And this doesn't excuse anything, right? But that was committed by First Nations men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they were playing it off as white supremacy and it was, you know, the evil white man that was doing it. They kind of had to play it down. And it's it's like, yeah. well, okay, there again is your problem. Like, and, you know, I mean, Trudeau called it a genocide. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to downplay it, but it was, let I me mean, get the numbers wrong again. It was like, I, I have the number like, like around like in the 1000 or in the 3000s over 30 years. No, I agree. Like you're, you're everything you say, I agree with totally. That's part of the problem is I think Quillette published an article recently on that. I think it was, yeah, it was Quillette. And um, the same thing happened. I think it was the Maori over in New Zealand. I believe it was Maori. I might be wrong here, but the same thing where the corporate liberal blue non press don't want to report on that. It's like, like me being indigenous or half indigenous, I, I want the truth. I don't, I don't want it to be. Uh, and that's what, where my whole point in my, some of my videos is like when you have theory and it dominates your ideology or your point of view to the point where you're will, you're selectively picking evidence that supports your theory you're not a scholar you're not an academic you're you're a politician or you're coming with a political axe to grind so yeah no but i mean like i again there's the last i think when you spoke of benjamin boyce you call them boarding schools but basically up here we had residential schools and i think the last mm. one closed in the mid 90s mm. now I don't know what, like in Quebec, it was mainly the Catholic church and they were, you know, religious schools as well as residential schools. And, you know, same thing, like the Inuit had gotten um, a written language in, it was a phonetically derived language, I think in the late 1800s. And it started only becoming more used in the fifties. And then you had the residential schools where they were banned from speaking their own language. So Mm -hmm. it was like, um, but you can't talk about that now. And you can't say, okay, we don't want the residential schools. We want the kids to, you know, yes, you need to have that history. Yes, you need to have a connection to your past. But there has to be a happy medium between having a connection to your past and pulling your kid out of school for a week because the caribou are coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and look, I used to go hunting with my dad. I've gone hunting. I, you know, like, but there's got to be a happy medium in there, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like take your kid hunting on the weekends, maybe, um, you know, like it's like, like whatever, like I go, I, okay. I'm trying to make jokes about it, but this is what I'm like, like seeing, like, I always see this. They're, they're, they're pushing this thing where, uh, sorry, I just completely like, they don't want to acknowledge that. Like they, they don't want to deal with the fact of, how this actually hurt where it's like, okay, this was bad. This is wrong. So we can't do anything ever like it again. And so whenever there's something where it says, you know what, 
uh, okay, like in my work, they used to have an internship program before I started where they took, um, you know, and it was open to uh, like local youth who had either finished high school or they'd gone and done a little bit of college and they came back or they took, you know, went to trade school or something. And it was to give them an internship in IT, get them used to, because you know, we did like, you know, like internet service providing. So it's satellite communication, microwave, all that kind of stuff. So we were starting to expand a little bit. I said, why don't we bring this back? And so we did. And so there's got to be a way to do things like that, where you do help your community. But at the same time, like you can't, you know, Again, I'm all for keeping your traditions and all for that, but you know, like I said, you can't pull your kid out of school for a week because the caribou are in town. Like, there's got to yeah. be a happy medium there. Like, I, I do you see like, I don't know, a long way, a long way. Like, do you see some kind of conflict in that? Like, with like keeping up traditional stuff and and trying to advance as well. Like, yeah, definitely. There, there's, there's a that's part of um, there's definitely an, uh, a dynamic involved between the interplay of tradition and change, as any culture you know yeah. goes through that. Uh, but I, I, that's why I think I'm tying into maybe something you said a second ago, but I really do believe that, you know, coming out of the enlightenment, that the classical liberal order is the best way f for all of us, for true diversity to flourish, um, holding two principles, uh, like the rule of law, you know, and that, but this, and, you know, how am I trying to say this? I, I think that when that's the foundation of society that you've got the, the ability then to pursue objective truth, you've got the ability to be open to evidence, to counter evidence, to revise your belief system. Mm -hmm. And that's where cultures mingle with each other. And there's this truly natural, spontaneous um, order developed where you, you know, I said in one interview, that's like, not only am I talking about like anthropologically wise, but just like common, like food, you know, ch changing, uh, exchanging recipes, things like that. And I think that's natural, but when it comes to like, like with native stuff, especially there is definitely, um, there's definitely this, this almost like, I don't, I don't want to say knee jerk reaction, but there's de definitely a, um, uh, and I don't know if it's, I, I, I guess I can try to say it's like confusing of the messenger with the message. So a lot of natives see um, the greater society, if you will, it was suspicion. And so there is this, there is this kind of conflict already between what they see as, um, I guess the free market as being a solution and they look upon, and this is again, why I'm tying back with early when I said about Vine Deloria's chapter, where there's a lot of, natives who have i believe falsely bought into this notion of the uh, what's called in french the the bon sauvage the the, the, noble, the, the savage. noble savage yeah. yeah and it's like that's not historically accurate at all you know and that's just something that i think most natives that i know that are my age and older they just want to be represented as authentic people we're not the peaceful utopian living with in complete harmony with nature nor are we the evil backdrop to western movies you know we're not yeah. the, the horrible savage but you see that within native culture there's there is um the effort to try to work through the change as it's happening but also retain that which is indigenous and as and I, my biggest thing is as i give that freedom to each community or tribe of people and let them figure that out for themselves 
And as long as that's the, the modus operandi, as long as that's the mm. classical liberal way of giving that to them and letting them thrive within that, I'm happy with that. And whatever they, and if they use that and they fail with it, uh, then that's on them. And I think that's what's most needed instead of this iron glove of, or maybe soft glove of paternalism, which is really an iron glove of paternalism coming from Washington, where everything within America, natives have to do, they have to get the, the approval of the federal government. Then they have to work it out with their state government. It's like you're, you're, you have all these layers of, of dysfunctional institutions that don't match up with the informal institutions and in native societies. So you get all these just pathologies that haunt native culture today, today, to this day. And there's a fine line between recognizing that there is, and I hate to use this word, there is some systemic issues but there's also, you has to be stressed over and over again. There's also accountability. There's social, there's individual responsibility. You know, individualism yeah. is also an important thing that we need to stress as well. Not just um, communalism. So. Okay, but the systemic thing, like, okay, there are, there are systemic problems, mm-hmm. but the words become so diluted and yeah. <laughs> no one wants to listen to it, but there's an issue, but like something you'd mentioned there and it's like, okay, this is, this might be a tinfoil hat theory or whatever, but. When you look at like something like colonialism, and I'll, I'll use this, okay, my family obviously, like you know, my, my family was born in India, like you know, grew up in India, like I was born there. We moved to Canada. Now, when we would go back for a visit, now my dad would remember things like the first time we went back, it was about it'd been six years before we went back, so it was from '75, then we went back in '81. Mm-hmm. So, in those five or six years, India had advanced quite a bit compared to what it was when we left. Like when we left, there was no national TV. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, you know, that, that leaks are little things like that. But when my, when my, when my parents went back for my sister's wedding and my brother's wedding in India, like, so, you know, we went back there and they got married there and my parents did, like, there's still huge elaborate weddings, but the, the way they did the decorations and the, the celebrations, a lot of people were like, you know what? I haven't seen a wedding like this since like the sixties or the seventies, because that's what they had remembered mm-hmm. and that's what they clung on to because that was what it meant to be Indian. Let's just say, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas in India, those things evolved because all those traditions evolve. Right. Exactly. And, and I'll get to my point in a second. There was a guy, there's two guys, as far as I understand, there's, there's two guys in like the 1800s or something, one from Oxford that came to the U S and one from um, Harvard that went to the UK and they were studying Irish and Scottish folk songs. And the guy who went to the UK got these Irish and Scottish and English folk ballads. And you could see, okay, the first time this song was sang was 1200. And this is how it changed over the years. Whereas the guy who came to the U S so if, you know, these Irish settlers came over in the 1700s, the folk songs they had stuck in the 1700 period, people who came over in the 1800s, they stuck in the 1800 period. Yeah. So, like, is that, is there something again, like, you know, obviously just speak for what you can, like in like native society where it's because, I mean, the culture was wiped out to you know, a huge, large extent. Mm-hmm. There was, so they're clinging on to what was something that was there a couple hundred years ago that might've naturally evolved. Yeah. But because it didn't evolve, they're trying to hold it to where it was fixed or is there a problem yeah. or something like that? No, I agree. That's your, that's a brilliant analysis. Cause I think that's what you're seeing more and more is that's kind of I'm tying it back to my first point, but mm. that's what Vine Deloria was kind of talking about. These, 
anthropologists on the reservations who would hold these workshops year after year and try to identify what, what it means to be native and that infiltrated Native America in Indian country to the extent that where you had indigenous people saying, well, this is what it means to be native because these anthropologists are telling us this. It's like, no, that's, you know, mm-hmm. and so you see again, that um, there's this definite um, within native culture. There's, there's definitely from, from what I, a little bit, I can see that there is this, there's, there's this, because of, and again, if I use these words, mm-hmm. there has been oppression, there has been yeah, suffering, there has yeah. been horrible tragic history mm-hmm. within native America. And it's, I, and I'm, my biggest fear for me, and I know my family is always cognizant of it, is not to raise us children or my side of the family, the Native side, to have that I, define us. You know, know it, know your history, because if you don't know your history, you don't know who you are. So know your history, but don't let that tragedy define you. Work through it and work past it. Don't let it hold you down and become a victim. Um, so that's where I say also my generation, the guys I know that are my age, they just like I do recognize very clearly some of the dysfunctions on within Indian country, but they don't like being called victim. They're like, you know, I've made my way in this world on my own two feet. I've done my own thing, but you do see that a lot more, more so nowadays, um, the, the kind of the opposite trend. Um, but I'm sorry, what was your original question? I was just, like I said, I was kind of getting to that. Like, is it, you know, trying to hold on to a culture that, I'm not saying you know, forget it all. Like, yeah. but like trying to hold, like keep it as rigid as, as it was. Like, like I said, I'm going to take my son out of a school for a week because the caribou's here. You know, you can go hunting on the weekend, or you can go. You know, if yeah. it's in the summer, it's almost 24 hour daylight. You can go hunting after school. Like, you know, yeah. Like, is it that? Like, is we have to hold on to this because this is what we are, or is it? Like- yeah, no. There, there's there's definitely some of that, and that's across. I think it's a spectrum uh, that you'll see. Some of them, some natives are very militant in that sense where um, even I've even, you know, I've gotten into when I was younger, I've gotten into fights and bars and skin bars, Indian bars where, you know, I've had, I've been called apple, you know, red on the outside, white in the middle, <laughs> you know, where I've, I've, so, you know, I've experienced all the best and worst, I guess you could say from both worlds. I've experienced, you know, racism from both sides. And I believe there is racism from both sides. There's not just, you know, and so I've seen it and uh, you get this very, you know, uh, you're not, you don't look like a full blood, like, yeah, because I'm not full blooded. You know, my dad was German Scottish, you know, but my mom's full blooded native. And say, like, well, what are you doing in this bar? This is our, what are you doing in this powwow? It's like, dude, I have the right to come here, you know. In, we, so yeah, I've seen that as well. Uh, but there is definitely that, that element within native culture where I think a lot of, I think there's like a natural process as you, as you go from adolescence into adulthood where you're trying to figure out who, what your identity is. A lot of youth, especially, cling on to this. I would say, like 1880s or 1850s in native look, phenotype, and as well as this militant attitude. And that's just not. As you get older, you tend to mellow out and realize that's not really. That's more of a cultural thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then it is really a native thing. And I think, like, also, there's also some very great things. Like, I think a lot of native communities are have, have been for years now uh, pushing trying to learn the language and learn the oral history, the Genesis, the creation myths. Uh, and like for where I work at, they've been, I don't know how long they've been doing it, but they've uh, started doing, it's not started, but they've done it for a while now where they teach the, the native women 
uh, how to make baskets, traditional baskets. So there's all this, like, again, it's a dynamic interplay where they're trying to retain some of the traditions and not lose them. Because on my, my tribe, the Hopi, there has been a lot of traditions that are gone. That are, that are just, there's no more snake clan. There's no more. There's certain clans that are just gone. Uh, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's something that you'd mentioned on Benjamin Joyce's. And it's, I'm going to try it in this. And it's just a little bit of pushback. Like, you know, you were saying, like, I, I know you didn't say you agreed with Edward Said 100%, but you said there were some parts of it that you thought was okay. And my issue with that post-colonialism stuff and the reason I bring it up and I could kind of tie it back to this is mm-hmm. so a lot of the stuff Edward Said got, okay. And the same thing with Fritz Fanon, like Franz Fanon. I, I, no, I just do not like Fanon. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, when I said uh, that, I was yeah, like, yeah. I was thinking, yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. Look, I'm, I, I know you say, I know you took, took out the violence. I'm like, but, I'm be baptizing those concepts. Yeah, almost, no, I, yeah. I just, the reason I don't kind of like them is um, they're so vitriolic. But right. also, okay, like like if you take a look at Fanon and you take a look at the post-colonialism, what's going on in North Africa right now, so like or mm-hmm. like in parts of the Middle East. So Fanon comes in in whatever was it uh, sixty four, the Algerian Revolution. So he's writing mm-hmm. around that time, right? But before that, in Egypt, you had Hassan al Banna and then um, Edward Said, and you have Hassan al Banna was a little bit of Pan Arabism, but it was also Pan Islam you know, plan is Islamic. I don't want to say Islamism because that's not what they use at the time. Mm-hmm. And then with Saeed, you had, uh, Saeed Kutub, you had um, Abdul Nasser, who was pan-Arabism and uh, Saeed Kutub wanted to do like a pan-Islamic thing. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted an identity based on Islam. Now, when when Fanon wrote and then he had the Orientalism, they, they, they worked on colonialism coming from a white person. In Northern Africa, so it was only a couple of years ago that places like Morocco and Algeria recognized the Berbers. So there, there was a whole language and a whole culture that got wiped out by Arabs. Yeah. Oh, know, definitely, by Muslims. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But because of the Orientalism, the post-colonialism, that you wasn't talked about. about it. Yeah. yeah. Because, oh, the Arabs were colonialized by the, and you're looking at North Africa as Arab countries. I'm like, no, they're Berbers. I mean, Arabs mm-hmm. were the colonizer that came in there. So you had like, like the language that the Berbers spoke up there, the Amazigh. Mm-hmm. that was up until a couple of years ago, that was not even recognized as a language. You weren't even allowed to speak it. Mm, so, I mean, okay. that's a lot yeah. of the same thing that happened with the, you know, like the, the natives and the first nations. I mean, the women used to have these tattoos going, uh, it was like on their eyelids. It was like a line going down. Then they had a ge- ge- geometric yeah. shape right there. And it was like, that was wiped out. Like that was being killed. And like, they slowly started bringing it back. So when I see some of this stuff out here, like I said, when I saw it with like the Inuit communities, you know, you can't let, uh, I mean, you had people in meetings use the term Wallanuk, and I'm probably pronouncing, it, but it was a it was a Inuit word or a Nook word that was like a derogatory, like it's basically like honky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, was, okay. it was like the Inuk version of that. I mean, like, um, so you you couldn't, and you had people in meetings say this stuff. Oh, this is a Wallanuk way of doing something. I'm like, well, you know, like you're bringing stuff up, you know, you. you you are modernizing it up there, which helps, you know, like yeah. if you've got a better internet, you've got better access to, you know, roads or you've got better, better access to uh, transport and travel. You might have people live up there for a while instead of, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things to fix. So like, like this whole thing of, um, Sorry, I'm just getting like, I, the same <laughs> as you, I talk, talk to which I lose my, but, but like, like I was saying, like, you know, the, the 
where do we start off with this? Like, I just went off the rails here. Um, no, it's like you're talking about post-colonial. No, I agree with you. Like, like within native culture, yeah, you've got this, no, again, this notion that this dances with wolves, Pocahontas, mythological yeah. concept of the harmonious Indian. There is, of course, some of that. And, but that, but that's it, like the Plains Indians, the Pawnee and the Sioux, the Iroquois and Mohawk, they were natural enemies of each other. I mean, natural, but you know, they, they can't stand each other, you yeah, know? And so this like, notion that, that it was ever peaceful coexistence, that's not true. That's just simply historically inaccurate, but you see that. So when I was saying that I agree with some of the post-colonialists, it's the ideas. It's almost like I have to pluck, pluck them up, extrapolate them, wash them off and rebaptize them. <laughs> Like, well, there's some things within critical legal studies and critical theory that I actually agree with, but I don't apply that to a race of people. Yeah. You know, I okay, apply no, that the, to the federal government, if anything, uh, this, this institution of, of power that can do a lot of damage, okay, which has well, done a lot of damage. But, okay, same here. I mean, the, there are some, okay, you know, I, I read a lot of, like, the Derek Bell stuff. I read a lot of the critical legal scholarship stuff. Okay, and there's some good points in there, mm-hmm. and, you know, but it's the application of it just goes off the rails. It's, yeah, it's it like you, st- you start off with this you know, foundation or you start off with like four cornerstones that could be, you could make a decent foundation from, but then you pour like lousy cement and you built like yeah. a, you know, a ramshackle hot on top of it. And it's like, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it goes crazy. Look, so that's I'll, the hard, that, was, that was the hardest. That was the hardest part is that as I'm, you know, read this stuff a long time ago, I'm rereading it again. Hmm. Luckily, I have my notes in some of my books that I can. I'm like, what was I thinking here when I wrote this? When I read this part, it's almost like it, that to me. When you're reading stuff, whether it's Derek Bell or Foucault, that really is. Well, you have to be a critical thinker, a critical reader. You can't just absorb. Which is that what I see today in academia is the exact opposite. With the young people are going to college, and they're not. I don't know if they're being taught or they're unequipped when they show up. But I've never just absorb something somebody says just because they're saying it i've always held it tentatively at bay and then i work through it but what i see today is most kids are just like dumping their old os for a new os software and they're just regurgitating it's like wait because i even had this issue within my own family and i had to talk with my daughter about it one time and i was like because she kind of said some things like that wait those are certain where are you getting this from there's key words you've said and she said it was through TikTok. And then I've, I have another native friend and she said the same thing that her daughters get this through TikTok. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realize the extent of the influence of like, I guess they're watching videos of, of non-natives saying that they have privilege. And if you're 15 years old and you don't know anything of the world yet or experience, you're going to absorb that and think, okay, there really is this thing called white privilege and white supremacy and white complicity and you know, all the whole. And then, so you've got to, that's where as a parent, I take it upon myself to kind of, I know, you know, my, plus my kids know me, they're like, let's take it to dad and he can figure it out. So yeah, I can tell you exactly where that comes from. And, but most parents can't. So that's why, man, I'm rambling here, but that's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah. So but look, the parent thing, I think there's a problem with that there too. Like there's, you know, when you're arresting parents for sending their 11 year olds off to park parks by themselves yeah, or, you know, chop, okay. There's, a, I don't think parents have the time anymore. I think parents yeah. like, like, you know, we're like, you said, you're 47, I'm 51. So we're roughly the same age. I yeah. remember, you know, in the seventies, I'd leave my house after breakfast on the weekend. Uh-huh. I, we wouldn't come back until dinner or like you know, all of us would go to one <laughs> yeah. kid's house for lunch 
And as soon as we were done, we're out the door again. Like, exactly. Like, yeah. You know, we pretty much lived outside. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and then like when I was up in like the Inuit community, it was like, you know, when it's summer and it's like, you know, it's 21 hour days, the kids were out until like two or three in the morning oh, on, wow. on their bikes, you know, like, um, but yeah. So like, you don't have that. So now par- like parents, when we were out on the weekends, parents had time to like, whatever, you know, have like, you know, get it on with each other or what, <laughs> whatever, but no, but they had time to work on things. Yeah. You no, know, mm-hmm. they, they could actually maybe spend some time and look at the kids curriculum yeah. or maybe mm-hmm. spend some time. Like now it's like, they look at it. It's like, yeah, this year we'll be talking about anti-racism. Okay. That's good. Anti-racism go off. Yeah, like, you know, that's, exactly. that's about the extent of it. Right. Yeah. Like, so there's a problem there. Um, so there is that issue of parents not having enough time. There is. And you know, now if you look, you know, again, like single parenthood's risen. Mm-hmm. So if you're a single parent and you're having to drive your, you know, two kids, everything they do and you can't leave them alone because if you do you're a horrible parent blah 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 yeah. blah, blah right you don't have the time to to go into what's what they're learning you just skim over it and it's i see that happening over and over again i mean i i see it also happening on a religious side of things like where parents would leave their kids at um like these are muslim parents would leave their kids at the mosque uh you know there was basically like sunday school um so they can learn the quran and stuff and then yeah. Sometimes they'd speak to their kids and then they'd pull them out because their kids were starting to sound a little extremist. Oh, wow. like, oh, what the hell are you learning here? Right. Yeah. And then they, you know, they, <laughs> but they wouldn't say anything at the mosque. So it, like, it's that, like, I, I don't, I, I, I think like places like Idaho, when they put in that uh, new free range kids law where, mm-hmm. you know, kids are allowed to be more independent. You know, and, oh, and this, yeah. is, this is not me asking for six-year-olds to take public transit by themselves, right? Like, you know, yeah. even though I did and I was a latchkey kid and I'd come home, but you know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like okay. Like, but I'm not saying, but you know, a 10 year old with a couple of their friends should be able to take public transit. Yeah. And you know, like we used to do that when we were like 10 and 11, we'd take the bus into Mon- downtown Montreal. We'd go watch a movie. We'd come back. You know, we'd act like idiots because we were 10, 11 years old, but whatever. Yeah. We were fine. Yeah. I, I think there has to be some kind of like that because parents need that time to be able to figure Digest stuff out and slow down. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah I, I've actually, that's a good question. I've always, I've, I'm always fascinated by like cultural books to analyze the culture. Like I've got. Oh gosh, who's that guy? Is this one right here? Um, I always I don't know how to say is Theodore Darlimple. He writes a lot about our culture, but um, he uh, he's got some books that were, uh, and 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 then there's that um, Neil Postman, Technopoly, and amusing ourselves to death, like amusing ourselves to death, where it's like, what is it that switched? Is it is it the birth of technology, or is it just modernism itself? But what is it that 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 changed from like I'm not saying that our generation is like the golden generation or the panacea to look to because every generation tends to do that. But what it was it that switched from our relatively self-independent generation where the Gen Xer generation, where the next generation wasn't so much like that. Do you, can you put your finger on that? Cause I sure can't, I don't know what it, what it was a helicopter. I mean, as people say helicopter parenting, okay, but there is a lot of that. Movement. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's a self-esteem movement. Yeah. There's the helicopter parenting. But the helicopter parenting comes in from the safetyism. So, like, if you look at, like, I think it was Jonathan Haidt, he talks about anyone born before 85 and then people born after 85. Because that's yeah. when you had, like, you know, pictures of kids on milk cartons, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, you had all yeah. that. Like, you yeah. scared people. Um, then there's also what came in through the colleges of education. So, repressive tolerance came in. Yeah. Um, 
around the same time as yeah, part of true. like I could it, so I mean repressive tolerance uh, what uh, Marcuse wrote that in sixty five right but like mm-hmm. it started coming into the academy like as being used and made into an application around eighty five and so you have this thing where you block out everything that's bad you know, yeah quote unquote bad and at the same point you're teaching parents to be super protective and I I, I don't think it was so much Gen Xers right? because when this stuff started happening, okay, so I was, okay, so at 87, I was 18. So like 85, I was like about 16. So it's not me having kids. Yeah. You know, like, like Gen Xers were like, you know, the Zoomers that that's our, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that that's what we created. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. True. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's like the late end boomers that created these because they were coming off the tail end of the hippie stuff. And, you know, they saw like, the bullshit going on in the seventies. And then I think with, when you had all the safetyism, it's like, again, you had a generation of people like reading Dr. Spock books to raise their kids. Like, you know, like my, you know, my parents, it was listen to the grandmother. Like you have like, again, it was more communal living. So, you know, mm. a multi-generational house. So we lived with my grandfather in India uh, until the last year. Then my dad and him got to fight, but it was, you know, my parents, my brother and sister, uh, two uncles, and my grandparents all in one house. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you lived in those kind of things. So you had multiple people looking after the kids. You had multiple, like, whereas after the 60s or so, it's it was one family, you know, the nuclear family type of thing. I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, this is not like get rid of the family or whatever, but people become busy, like, well, there's a parenting model model change. I know, like, I've read this somewhere. I don't remember. Right. Don't remember where, but like, my my parents definitely practiced the authority model, where the mother and father were the authorities, the elders are the authorities. You don't disrespect them, and you get you get a, a butt whipping if you did. Um, and then that changed uh, to where it was became the parents became the best friends of the kids, and like part of that whole helicopter. And then I think like you're tying into what you said about Jonathan Haidt. Um, is that that coddling of the American? Is that the one you're talking about book or the well, other one? I mean, he's he talks about in the coddling. They talk about it there, but I've heard him the speak righteous about mind. It, it, yeah, the yeah. righteous mind was more about type of thinking. Like, there's a happiness hypothesis, but like coddling's where he talked about it most. But this, I was just more, mainly from listening to him talk a few places. Yeah, like he, mm-hmm. but there's definitely. I, I saw it was fascinating to me because I always like wondered what is it that is so attractive. And I think again, a big part of it. You may disagree with me, but is I think a loss of people don't realize, but when if you don't have the necessary support system, whatever that could be, I don't know if secularism is enough for some people if you lose the religious aspect within dimension within society. And so they cling on to yeah. this woke movement as a, as a religious replacement. I, I, you know, I don't. I, okay, I, the way I look at it this way is, um, and I mean, I, I talked about this once and as I said, it's, so if you look at the Abrahamic faith, right, it's, it wasn't science that God said, don't study, right? God, you know, quote unquote science. God said, I did all this. All of this comes from me. Worship me because I made everything. I'm responsible for everything. There was your science. The knowledge that was denied them was the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't all knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if you want to, like, I, there's my issue with a, like some of the, the atheist movement and forget the atheism plus, but like even people like Dawkins and Sam Harris, um, 
Hitchens a little bit, but him a little bit less because he did kind of push the other ideas where it was for Harris and for Dawkins and for people like that, it was break the spell and walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's it's easy to disprove that, like, you know, something in Islam that the sperm is formed between the ribs and the backbone. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's not. Like, mm-hmm. we know where the sperm comes from, right? It's not yeah. the ribs and the backbone. So, like, yeah. forget that, right? It's But religion offered you something. It offered yeah. stories. It offered uh, narrative. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but there is, a, there is yeah. that narrative, but it also offered yeah. you a community. It offered you something together. Now, just breaking the spell and go off and do your own thing and oh yeah, think critically without yeah. explaining what all that is without giving, like if you wanted to do as if you wanted to, like you need something for people to get excited about and you need a story, you do need that narrative. Yeah. And I mean, something better than that would have been, okay, you know what? And I'm not talking about a, a secular church or anything, but like, like, like messages like Carl Sagan, like when he talked about, how we're made of star stuff and things like that. Like, you know, talk about that kind of thing. Like give that as a replacement, not, not even so much like you worship the science, but worship the method. Mm-hmm. It, it's the methodology. That's, it's not the end result. It's not where it comes from. It's not like worship. So it's, it's the methodology. It's the story behind that. Like, I think there is something missing there and it's, it's. Yeah. So that's uh, where I think um, where there's within the whole critical race theory, it's very reductive of, everything comes back down to race. Everything's, you know, especially one race, white supremacy. I kind of see that too with, with maybe secularism where, or not secularism, but with the maybe new atheism movement or, and here's the thing. It's not new to those of us uh, Christian apologists who are familiar with this. It's maybe new to the, that generation was new, but to those of us in the know, it's like, this is, this is, it goes back to the fourth century with Celsus. But, but I also this is something I've been studying because I'm preparing for this whole French Revolution uh, podcast, ten-part series. Um, is that I know the French philosophies, the philosophers leading up to the French Revolution. You had Diderot and Voltaire and all the encyclopedists. They they very much stoked the flames of anti-religious sentiment, sentiment, which there was good reason for that at the time. But they almost pushed so far that they eroded the very foundations. And then you had the horrible tear of the, of the bloodshed of the French revolution. And it was within a 10 to 15 year period that this revolution appears upon the scene. And I'm almost looking at it and I'm not besmirching anybody that was part of the movement. That's not what I'm trying to do, but there's definitely something there where you see the new atheist movement. Then all of a sudden you see this birth of the woke movement. I mean, it was already there, uh, yeah, but it was like, there's a spark that sparked it. Okay. But the new atheist movement. And I think it, Again, I think this goes back to like what I was saying about the ex-Muslims, where they see this, you know, you're opposed to homophobia, you're opposed to transphobia, you're opposed to misogyny. So when you look at like ex-evangelicals, there's a lot of them that I hear talking about, oh, deconstructing my faith. Yeah. So there's a deconstruction. Yeah. Yeah, So like they got that postmodernism and into Mm -hmm. it. Um, So it was already like, so they were kind of fed the postmodernism in the church. And when they left it and they're seeing this stuff and it's, again, it's, opposite of what you know a fundamentalist evangelical would be like you know and yeah. it's so you but you had the atheism plus which was more of a problem than like the new like like i said like the new atheists they kind of look at like sam harris richard dawkins you know the the four horsemen or whatever you had those and then um but the atheism plus where you have those people like you know i call them vocal woke evangelicals now so you have like people like yeah. matt Dillahunty and um 
the guy from Friendly Atheist there. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, 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 Hemant yeah. Mehta or whatever. So you have these people who are like, oh, Dawkins is transphobic. Oh, J.K. Rowling is transphobic. Uh, you know, focusing on the race and all that stuff. So again, I can see how this stuff is attractive because it's the complete opposite of what you're doing. And especially like some of these people who grew up in evangelical homes, who didn't go to school and didn't go to college and didn't go, you know, but then you get into college and you're college is a life-changing thing. Like, you know, that's mm -hmm. around the time where you're, you're becoming a, an adult, you're becoming the person you're going to be. Mm -hmm. And then you start taking all these things and if you've already had doubts or something that confirms them. And then you have this complete, what looks like a complete opposite thing, but it's just another faith. Yeah. That's, that's an issue. Um, look, I'm just going to ramble for a couple of minutes and I'll let you go. Uh, I'll let you re respond to it. Then we can okay. start wrapping up. <laughs> but like, but this goes back to something I, I was talking about. Like when I said, like when they come into college and, I, and when I talked about Dawkins and, and Harris and stuff, and I, I mean, I've said it, and I think we both might have said it at this point, like, you know, talking about like a foundation of what we're built on. I think that's where mm. we go wrong. We look at our first principles like a foundation. And I think that that is the wrong way to look at our first principles. You need those first principles. You know, are you going to base it on free speech? Are you going to base, base it on blasphemy? Like, what are you going to have? Mm -hmm. But I think we need to look at our first principles like the earth of a garden. Okay. Okay. If you have a foundation, you build on top of that foundation and you build your house, you build whatever. Once it's built, you think of your subfloor, you don't think of your foundation, right? You think of the first amendment as the end all and be all, but no, the rights and the principles of free speech are so much greater than the first amendment, mm -hmm. you know? So, and then if you need to change something, you have to add on to that existing structure, like, you know, and you forget about your foundation until it cracks. If you actually like, and this is just more of a mental exercise. So like how people can think of where they're coming from. But if you think of like your first principles as a garden of an, you know, as a, as the earth of, in your garden, when you want to come up with a weird law and, you know, like I'm going to take something completely insane here, like, you know, where once a month you kill off one out of three people, right? You know, like whatever, like, you know, like, you plant that in your garden. It's like, no, no, that's a weed. That's going to do damage. You pull it out mm -hmm. where if it's on a foundation, you're like got to attach it to it. Then you got to take something else to take it off. So, you know, when you put in one law and that law is no good, then you got to put two other laws to fix it. Then it branches off it's again and again and again. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that's why, like, I think we need to change the way we think about our first principles. So I think that's where like this, the idea of replacing religion, you know, you need to give that meaning making, you need to give those something for like a story or something to connect you together, you know, a, a sense of belonging, but get away from that foundation, get away from that dogma where, you know, kill the apostate. If, you know, mm -hmm. he that asks you to worship gods other than the gods of your fathers, even if they're your brother, kill them, like get away from that crap. Like, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. So that that's where I think we need to kind of go. Yeah. That's a good point. Cause I think, well, <laughs> Um, here I'm going to bring in some of the what I've studied in theology. Um, okay. There's, there is, and this is where I think postmodernism again, where I think it's done some benefit. Whether you had this philosophical position called classic foundationalism, mm -hmm. which was this belief that with just the, with the use of reason we could discover these indubitable truths, and what they neglected was that we bring our own philosophical baggage with us, our own culture, our own. You know, like when I interpret anything, whether it's a Hallmark card, whether it's the news. I interpret it as a 47-year-old 
breed Native American to have, you know, I, I bring all this baggage, you know, to the table. And when it comes to like science, especially I need to be able to, or reading something, I need to be able to read the kernel of it, the, the objective truth of it without hopefully not superimposing my own ideological baggage onto it. And so I think many classical foundationalists neglected that and within science that was like the birth that was the beginning that was logical positivism which was like the air right the, the verification principle and then you had the philosophers of science like thomas kuhn carl Pol michael polanyi f.a hayek and others philosophers of science who said wait a second you need to account for the inductive element of it and so and then you had the postmodernists who again you have to almost like sanitize what they're saying because they like Foucault goes too far with biopower and gives off on these crazy tangents where it's like no, they're the system's revising itself. The, the 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 I don't know if you could say it's the first principle, the methodology of the classical liberal foundation, or maybe I shouldn't say the word foundation, but it has something built into it that's re constantly revising itself. And I so coming from theological from a theological point of view, there's a system or not a system. It's a methodology when you interpret something, the science of hermeneutics, hermeneutics. It's called the hermeneutical spiral, where it's no longer a foundation, but it's a spiral. And as you interpret it, so like when it comes to interpreting a text, uh, I want to exegete from that text what that text actually says. And as I interpret that text, that text also interprets me. I gain more knowledge and understanding. And as I re take that knowledge and understanding and it broadens you know, through reading and experience, then I go back and reinterpret that text. And I constantly, there's, so there's this spiral that gets closer and smaller and smaller and closer, closer to an approximation of truth. So I definitely, I understand what you're saying. I guess, um, does that make sense? I, I know yeah. what you mean. Like sometimes I think we have this view, this foundational view. And when things come along and it shifts and it cracks, we, we so badly add all these ad hoc fixes to it that we're not realizing that we, maybe we need to change it out for a better analogy or a better metaphor. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get it. It's like, you know, and it, you know, again, what I was saying, like, you know, a foundation as opposed to a garden, like, you know, I think this is purely for like a, you know, mental exercise type of thing. Like, I, I don't expect people to go around thinking of, I don't think people go around thinking about their first principles on a daily basis anyways, but like, if you are actually going to start from somewhere, I think, you know, just as a mental exercise, it's not a bad place to go from. Yeah. Um, I really wish, I really wish they would teach as a mandatory class in every, you don't even have to teach logic, uh, the Venn diagrams. Just if everybody took one semester on informal fallacies, ad hominem arguments, genetic arguments, all these argumentum ad vericundium, all these, they would, people would spot most of this critical race theory has come, is just full of, you know, question begging, petitio principia. There's so many fallacies. And it's like, I really believe society would benefit as a whole if we just took. Oh, there, there's a lot of things, man. We, yeah. We, I mean, they're, they're all, but, they, no, but you know, bring back shop classes yeah. bring back like home ec you know and and not just because oh people you know oh well you know so you have to, we need carpenters or whatever right? yeah yeah you do need carpenters but i'm an it geek i did okay in school but i liked wood shop i like yeah. working with my hands it's you know i think part of the problem is people don't have that everything's virtual you don't have that physical feeling space, and you, yeah. you know like Oh, I built something on Fortnite. It's like, yeah, you hit not, delete and it's gone. You know, like you know, same, go yeah. outside, go build a fort. You know, like I built tree houses yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, they were shitty. 
it were me and my friends, but like, yeah. you know, we had a tree house and we built mm. ourselves. It was fun. Like we were 12 years old. It was you know, like sense of accomplishment. Yeah. I think we need things like that. Like we need to go back to some of that. And it is, you know, this is not like the being a Luddite or whatever, but you know, if you're living in the city, like, uh, you know, create a community garden, but make a section just for the neighborhood kids. Yeah. You can have like, you know, an adult or someone around to make sure that, you know, teenagers aren't planting pot or whatever, like, you know, go steal their stash. Um, yeah. like, or, 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 but, you know, but I'd be like, just even something like a community garden where you, like, a, a section of it's for the kids and, you know, yeah. they're like, we're taking away like those kinds of sense of accomplishments. Like if yeah. you're a kid and you do something on your own. Have you ever read anything from the classical, I guess they call it the, the trivium, the classical method of education, classical education. They, according to the ancient Greeks, they had the quadrivium for adolescence. And part of it was gymnastics is where the word come from, comes from, from mm -hmm. Greek, because they realized that having something physical, doing something physical with your body in relation, you know, kinesthetics or, mm -hmm. uh, adds it expands and broadens the mind when like you said actually doing something a project working on it with your hands there's something tangible and physical that you just can't get from a virtual video game or mm -hmm. online and that's and and i think that i think that's lost on of us on us today because we mean you probably we definitely had that where is it i know my yeah. son he can spend hours in front of the video game until i get after him it's like dude go outside and do something you know but but yeah i mean it's i, I think we're like i mean I, I think there's a huge problem like this year kind of i think pointed it out the amount of time kids were spending online like you know you don't have that sense of like you're talking to your like you know here we're talking to each other and it's a lot better than you know texting back and forth but <laughs> you know if you're in the same room that's a whole other level of communication that works mm -hmm. a lot better right it's it's and so kids are losing like i mean you know, oh, I'm going to play with my friends. And then they all, you know, he's, I see my nephew say that oh, I'm going to play with my friends. Like if I go visit my sister and, you know, he puts uh -huh. on his headphones and sits in front of his screen. I'm like, no, you're not going to play with your friends. You're just playing with your friends online. <laughs> you know, like you're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Azeroth is not a place. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Look, man, uh, we've been going out for a little bit. I don't want to keep you too long. It was okay. great. If you got any like last words, if you want to tell people, you know, your take on why they shouldn't listen to this stuff or whatever, oh. man, or, or where people can get a hold of you. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, if you guys are interested, just visit my channel, Native Liberty. I've got more stuff coming out soon. I'm doing a, hopefully if I get done today recording, I should have it edited by tomorrow. Pedagogy of Discomfort. That'll be coming out soon. And then I'm just expanding more and more stuff to my channel. I'm going to be talking about inflation soon, uh, institutions. Uh, I'll be eventually probably getting out of the woke movement, not out of it, but you know, if yeah. I'll get back into it, if I need to, if I feel like there's a, something I need to say, I'll definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reading stuff about it, but I would just say, you know, I can't stress enough that your channel voices channel, uh, new, new discourses that they you guys do a great, uh, man, plus your article on Newsweek. That was a great, great article, man. Oh, I was like, you. Whoa, this is really good. I liked it. I really um, had all my, my family read it. That was, that was the, all the editor. Like, thank you very much, Bhatia. Like, if it wasn't for her editing it, it would have been a bunch of rambling mess, man. It was good. It was yeah. good. Well, yeah, thank thanks. you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. It was great. And thanks, everyone, for listening.